Good afternoon, everyone. Um, to keep, our, <laughs> to keep our, our schedule moving along, we'll have this conference. Um, it'll be our final conference. So some of you during lunch were asking um, about me, and correctly so. I didn't really do a, an introduction to myself. So I'm from Oklahoma, so I was born and raised in Oklahoma City, and I was there through high school. Uh, after high school, I went to college in Michigan to a small school, also called Aquinas College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, I met some Dominican friars there and sisters as well, but, um, but they did make an impression on me, but maybe not a super strong impression. Uh, after college, I moved uh, back to Oklahoma, and then I moved to Fort Worth after about a year, Fort Worth, Texas, and that's where I met the Dominicans, the Dominican friars uh, that, that are in Dallas. And, um, and it's basically from there that my vocation kind of sprung up. I started going to the friars, uh, to their masses. I started attending their prayer, and then that kind of started to draw me in more and more. I was also discerning with the Franciscans at the time. And so uh, when I ended up joining the Dominicans, I asked if I could take their religious name Francis, after Francis of Assisi, and, uh, and they said yes. So um, there's other other people like me, but it's a Dominican named after a Franciscan. Uh, so some people find that unique, but in the order, it's not as unique as maybe we think we are, or as, as unique as I think I am, maybe. Um, but in my time working with young adults, when I was in campus ministry and vocation work, uh, whenever we met somebody new or whenever they met somebody new, they would always ask two questions. They would ask, where are you from? And they would ask, what's your major? Or what do you do? meaning their, their work. And in a sense, uh, what we really want to know, I would say when we ask these questions, where are you from and what's your major, they want to know where do you come from, the same question. The second question is really where are you going? Where's what you're doing now preparing you to do in the future? Maybe you've asked yourself that question, why am I here? Maybe you've asked it out of frustration Maybe you had a job you didn't like, and so you asked that question to yourself, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Or maybe you were angry, in some sort of anger, you've been dragged into something by a friend or a family member. Maybe it was out of wonder. You know, you're pondering your own existence. Why am I here? After 40 days in the desert, Jesus walks into the synagogue and in his hometown And he stood up to read, and he opened the book, he opens the scriptures, and he found the place where it was written, and it said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord." He read this, and then he said something that that no one expected to hear. He closed the book, he sat down, everyone was looking at him, all eyes were fixed on him, and he said to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus claims that this is his mission, his, his why. Why am I here? That's why Jesus was here. Jesus, he reads this text out loud. He claims that he is 
the answer, the answer to centuries of longing for justice, for peace, for forgiveness, for goodness, for truth, for liberty. He himself is the fulfillment of the kingdom. But the kingdom, and he says this later on, is like a mustard seed. It starts out tiny, perhaps even unimportant. The kingdom is is tiny. It's deep in the soul. It's just a seed. And even though he, he said he came to set people free from captivity and oppression, from sickness, from poverty, Jesus didn't leave any sort of program for a kind of socio-political revolution with protests and campaigns. Instead, he gave a simple plan for a revolution of the heart. Jesus tells his disciples, if you remain in me, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so the kingdom, the answer, is sitting right in front of them in the synagogue. Jesus is the very face of of the kingdom that he announces. He embodies in himself the answer to the longings of the whole human race. He brings the power to transform our hearts and our minds. That's this this revolution of the heart. But we have to be willing to listen. We have to be receptive. St. John Paul II in World Youth Day, one of the World Youth Days, he said, it is Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness. He's waiting for you when nothing else you find satisfies you. He is the beauty to which you are attracted. According to Jesus, that's his mission, that's his why, to satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. Now, in today's world of of false advertising and doctored videos and fake news and just all of this kind of stuff, claiming something to be true... It really isn't enough. You'd be skeptical if I told you that I'm 39 years old, and I I am 39 years old, that's true, but uh, you'd be skeptical if I told you that I had seven PhDs, right? I could even show you the diplomas. I have these seven diplomas. That might convince you, but still, you might demand that I say or write something that proves what I just told you, not just tell you, but prove it in some way. And in a way, in a way, it's the same with Jesus himself. For him to say, I am fulfilling the kingdom, that's one thing. But then for him to do it, that's another. That's exactly what he does on his time on earth. From the very beginning of his ministry, the one bit of news about Jesus spreads like wildfire. This one bit of news is his ability to work miracles. Gospel tells that that Jesus restores sight, that he heals the sick, that he drives out demons and cures lepers, that he raises the dead. John the Baptist even sends his disciples to ask Jesus bluntly, are you the one we've been looking for? Are you the one we've been waiting for, or should we look for another? And how does Jesus answer? He says, the lame can walk, the blind can see, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. What do you think is essentially what he says? I'm doing all of these things. I'm showing you. What do you think? Even his enemies agreed that he did miracles. 
the ancient sources like the Jewish historian Josephus and, and Celsus and an ancient Greek philosopher, they both mentioned that Jesus did, it's translated as startling deeds, even though they didn't believe in him. They actually don't bother trying to deny what Jesus did. They just claim that he did it by sorcery or some other kind of strange power. In fact, if we actually read the Gospels, we find that there's no way to dismiss Jesus. There's no way to dismiss Jesus that makes him look like a good guy. People say it all the time, though, right? Jesus was a good man. He's a good moral teacher. And some people will add, he's those things, a good moral teacher, but he's not God. One of the most famous writers, C.S. Lewis, says that this is not an option. Before we look at that, let's think about this. Let's listen. Let's list off some of the things that Jesus says about himself. Jesus says that he has the power to forgive sins. He said that he could, he said that no one could prove that he had ever sinned. Jesus, many of us would say, or at least many maybe non-believers would say that he was very arrogant. He said things like, Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He claimed authority to interpret the law of God. He claimed to be one with God the Father. He said, he didn't just say, I know the way, but he says, I am the way and truth and life. So as if he wasn't telling the truth, either he was trying to trick us, or he was just kind of really crazy. He was nuts. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying that he was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He says there's no middle ground. There's no point, actually, in the New Testament where Jesus is met with indifference or boredom. Or boredom. No one just sort of looks at Jesus and says, oh, I'll just leave him alone. It incites people to do something either to like him or not like him. His presence always provokes either profound questioning or deep hostility. And so most people, I would say, opt for hostility rather than than curiosity because it's very hard to remain indifferent to Jesus when we actually see him for who he is. Again and again in the scriptures, people ask, who is this? Where does his authority come from? Who does he think he is? Why does he talk this way? They either ask deep questions or they're hostile. Which camp do we fall into? We want to dig deeper. We put up barriers. Now, at one point, Jesus took his disciples aside and he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they gave some answers. But then Jesus looked at them and said, who do you say that I am? This is a question that Jesus asks every person. Some authors will say that he asks this question to every generation. Because Jesus didn't go around shoving the mystery of his divinity down people's throats. He wants people to freely arrive at their own conclusions. He wants people to arrive at the truth about who he is and how they're going to respond to him. He taught in in such a way as to lead people to ask for themselves the question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? When he was elected pope and took the name Francis, 
uh, Jorge Bergoglio was asked the question by a reporter, an interviewer. They asked him, who is Jorge Bergoglio? And there was some silence. And then he said, I am a sinner. That's the most accurate definition. I am a sinner. I am a sinner whom the Lord has looked upon. So we have this idea on the one hand. But then on the other hand, what does our society say? Our society encourages to say, no one can judge me. We tend to deny any responsibility for our negative actions. We defend or we make excuses. Someone else is to blame. I can't help it. It was his idea. In fact, if we look at Adam and Eve, when God asked Adam why he ate from the fruit of the tree, Adam says, the woman that you put here with me gave it to me. And then God turns to Eve, and what does she say? The serpent told me to do it. We're often unwilling to, to admit fault. And we don't recognize our own, our own hypocrisy or judgmentalism, but we can so often spot it in, in others. Again and again, Jesus criticized people who, who focused on the failures of others while ignoring their own sins. He called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they're pretty and clean, but on the inside, they're, they're just filled with, with death, dead bones and rotting flesh. Consider how, and I do this too, how we criticize famous people, celebrities, for their sin, or we complain about social, political, even religious organizations for their hypocrisy, for their injustice. And it's a game that we play all the time. If I can redirect blame to somebody else on the outside, then I don't have to look inside to admit my own failures, my own faults. Another famous English author, this time C.G.K. Chesterton, he was asked by the London Times, in your opinion, what's wrong with the world today? And again, he took some time, and then he answered very simply. He said, dear sir, I am. I'm what's wrong with the world today. If I wish to change the world, I must first be changed. There was a, a, a comic in one of the newspapers, maybe, gosh, this would have been three or four years ago, um, and it had just two panels, very simple, um, and it had, like, some random politician, and it said, like, um, who wants change? And then the crowd is, you know, happy and, you know, smiling and everything. And then in the next panel, it said, who wants to change? And it was the opposite. The crowd, you could see the grimaces. There was even some fists in the air. Um, that's very true of our world. We want things to be different, but it has to start with us, with us as individuals. So let's take a quick look at the, the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. You all probably know the story. It's very famous. It's probably the most famous of the parables. And it's basically, this man had two sons. The younger, son's demand, the younger son demands that his father give him his inheritance. He runs off. He wastes the money on a life of, of debauchery. And eventually, realizing what he has done and how this has ruined his life, he goes back home to beg his father to hire him as a servant. But on his way back, the father sees him, comes running out to meet him. The father interrupts the son's apology and reclaims him as his son, giving him expensive gifts, even throwing a party. And I'll assume 
that we'd all like to be the younger son, or often that's who we identify with, always able to find acceptance in the arms of a loving father. We run to God. We want to run to God because we know we're not perfect. But I would say, instead of identifying ourselves with the younger son, which is, again, not a bad thing, it would be nice if we all tried to be more like the father. Wouldn't you like to say that you are the one that's forgiving, that's loving, that can let go of past hurts that easily, just like the Father, that we can embrace someone who has done us some sort of immeasurable harm. How many of us here can actually do that? We want unconditional love for ourselves. We want unconditional love for ourselves, for sure. And we also want, or at least we should want, to be able to give unconditional love like the Father does in the parable. Our love is is it's limited. We know this. We're simply sinners, as has been mentioned already. And so Jesus had this one thing in mind. He had the forgiveness of sinners in mind. And he says this. He says, I have not come for the righteous, those of us who are convinced that we're already good people, but he came for, for sinners. A sinner knows that they need forgiveness, just like someone with a, with a toothache. They know they need a dentist. And they also know that they can't fix it on their own. They have to humbly admit that they're unable to change this. They need somebody else's help. We need, as sinners, God's help. Now, usually, sin comes from trying to fulfill our deepest longings in something that just can't do it. In hurting others, we make ourselves look or feel better In abusing alcohol or drugs, we try to escape. In relying on money to make us happy, it leads us on different paths. In using power or lies to make ourselves feel strong or important, maybe we use romance or sex to to convince ourselves that another human being can, can satisfy all our longings, and the list can go on and on. So in answer to all of this, Jesus makes the simple proclamation I have not come to condemn the world, but so that they might have life and have it more abundantly. This is why he comes, not to condemn the world, but to give us that abundant life. He looks upon those whom he calls with mercy, not condemnation. We are all sinners caught in the embrace of of a merciful God. We matter to Jesus. We are valuable. We are desirable to God. So growing up, we might think that we've heard the way to matter is to make some sort of impact in the world. We must get into a good college or a good grad school. Maybe we have have to go to med school or law school or business school, and we have to have that degree, whatever it is. Or we have to be rich or famous. We have to be the founder of some innovative startup. We have to make some scientific discovery or write that New York Times bestseller, come up with the next TV idea or publish that groundbreaking paper, discover some new way to bring people out of poverty. We have to invent that device that can bring clean water and electricity to, to the third world. Maybe we believe that we have to do 
something like become a priest or a teacher or a sister or a monk to change somebody's life. And the list goes on. We think we have to do certain things. We base a lot of our value as a person on our success, however we define that. We want to bring something to show for ourselves. We might want to be able to say one day, I'm an expert, so you can't dismiss me. I'm a doctor. I can help. I'm a scientist. I have the answer. But a plan like this could unravel very quickly in one bad semester, one bad application or bad interview or bad performance. And so our lives, they become ruled more by anxiety and busyness and fear and perhaps even even panic. It's all driven by the, the high expectations to perform well. We drive ourselves to perform perfectly and even outperform everyone else. So we can say proudly, this is what I did. No one wants to be a failure at anything that we have our hearts set to. But is that it? Is that what life is all about? So what about Jesus? Was he a success? Right after Jesus's number one disciple, if you want to call him that, right after the leader of the apostles, Simon Peter confesses his faith in Jesus. Jesus says something puzzling. He says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer greatly from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Peter is shocked and he objects. He says, Lord, this will never happen. Then Jesus insists. He says, You're thinking not as God does, but as men do. Jesus is convinced that the cross, which is a sign of failure, a sign of shame, a sign of humiliation, not a sign of success or power or fame, is the only way to be successful in his mission. So at the end of his, his earthly life, Jesus was abandoned by almost everyone, even those who were closest to him. When he preached difficult messages, many of his disciples, they walked away. Those are the Gospels that we're hearing right now in this time of Easter. One of his own friends, one of, those, one of the twelve, turned him over to be put to death. Another denied him three times that he knew him. People misunderstood him all the time. They insulted him. They mocked him. They demanded his death. This isn't the kind of success that we normally think of. St. Paul writes, he says, the message of the cross seems like foolishness. The cross does seem crazy to us. It was the ultimate instrument of public torture, death, and oppression, and its sole purpose was to destroy, was to terrorize, was to create fear. But Jesus takes it up for our sake as an instrument of, of healing. He turns it back into an instrument of healing and not of destruction. And it might sound crazy to some, maybe not to you here, but according to Jesus Christ, the true way of love and the only way to victory is through the cross. It turns the whole thing kind of upside down. Our presumption is that the successful, the powerful, the famous are the ones who get served. They are the ones who are desirable and lovable and acceptable. And so we have to become like them. We have to become celebrities, or we have to have a high-paying job, we have to be admired by everyone, or else we'll end up serving them. In the way of the world, the ones who are less, 
they serve the ones who are desired and loved and important. But Jesus goes to the the opposite extreme. He, Jesus, who's the fulfillment of the kingdom, who's the Messiah, who's the son of the Most High, he allows himself to be sentenced to death in service of those who don't even like him, for those that, that hate him. He accepts being undesired and unloved. He's seen as unimportant. He's mocked. He's unsuccessful. He has this gruesome death. And why does he do it? He does it for us. He does it for you and for me because we matter to him. In the early morning before the sun came up, after a few, after a very traumatic three days, the women, the women they made their way to the tomb where his body was left in a hurry. And meanwhile, the men, they hid behind locked doors. They were afraid of suffering or some horrible fate, perhaps the same fate as Jesus. They slept very little those last nights. They kept watch going over the past few days, what happened, trying to make sense of it all. And without a doubt, everyone was focused on the fact that Jesus, who was their teacher and their friend, was dead. And not just dead, but he died a very gruesome and public death. But then the earth literally opened up. This powerful earthquake shook the city that morning. The angel descended from heaven. The stone was rolled away from the tomb. And he wasn't there. There was no body. He isn't here. This is what the angel told the woman. He is not here. And this is where a lot of people will say, right, he wasn't there. In fact, that's what the disciples said when they heard about it. It's easy to believe that Jesus was tortured and crucified, but raised from the dead. No one comes back. No one comes back from the dead. No one. But it's a simple fact that the earliest Christians, they sincerely believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't think it was a clever myth or a metaphor for his spirit living in the hearts of disciples. St. Paul goes so far as to say that if Christ was not raised, your faith is in vain. He says that it would be the saddest thing in the world to believe in Jesus if he didn't rise from the dead. You'd be wasting your time. And it's not that people back then were really gullible. Sometimes we'll hear this argument. In fact, There are plenty of examples of disbelief and doubts about the resurrection. The people in Athens, they laughed at St. Paul and they mocked him when he told them that Jesus rose from the dead. When the women came back and told the men what they had seen that Sunday morning, some of them thought that it was just a tale. But soon, soon after, he started appearing to people, to Mary Magdalene, then to Peter, the apostles as a group to other disciples, and then over over 500 people at one time. So did it happen? Well, let's admit that if it didn't happen, it was a very well-orchestrated conspiracy. Why would you get very well-educated men like Paul of Tarsus? Why would a person like him, smart, well-educated, give up a successful life to preach a hoax, if he knew that it was a hoax. When he wasn't getting paid at all, he says this again, he wasn't getting paid for this. 
But instead he was getting beaten and stoned and imprisoned, abused, and eventually he was executed. What could he gain by telling some, you know, some ridiculous lie like this? Paul even asks himself the question, why then are we endangering ourselves all the time? On top of that, how did they convince so many people to go along with this? Anyone who joined up had a very high likelihood of being imprisoned and tortured, exiled, crucified, all of these other ways of being tortured for believing that Jesus had risen from the dead. The reality is, as the apostles, they behave the rest of their lives like men convinced that they had met the resurrected Christ. They firmly believed that they saw him with their own eyes, that they touched him, they spoke to him. No hallucinations, no no hoaxes. This is what John claims at the beginning of the first letter. What we have heard, what we have seen and touched with our hands, we proclaim to you. Why do Christians, why do we get so excited about the resurrection? Why is Easter the biggest feast of the church, the biggest celebration of the church. St. Paul writes, if for life alone we have hoped in Christ, we are the most pitiable people of all. For, for Let me read that better. <laughs> if for this life alone we have hoped in Christ, we are the most pitiable people of all. This life alone Right here is nothing to place our hopes in. Yes, life is good. There are many wonderful moments. There are beautiful gifts. There are things to look forward to and enjoy. But we know it's also filled with suffering. We're severely limited in our ability to really satisfy our hunger. What we're looking for is that eternal life. That's what we place our hope in. Our hope in is that life after the resurrection that Jesus invites us to. Jesus once met a woman at a well on a hot day. You all know the story, I think. He asked her for water, and she refused. He said to her, if you knew who was speaking, you would ask me for water. If you drink the water I give, you will never be thirsty again. He promises this. He promises that his water, life-giving water, will satisfy her. Not physically, at least not completely physically, but it will satisfy deep within her. That's the abundant life that he offers, the kingdom. What he offers is eternal life, to be immersed in the source of all goodness, truth, love, and beauty. Jesus Christ, who was beaten, bruised, crucified, pierced, buried, is risen from the dead. That's what we believe. That has made all the difference.